Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Are You Ready to Serve on a Board? Board service is an aspiration for many leaders, and for good reason. It's a very rewarding experience, and yet it comes with a lot of responsibility and risk. And most boards today still struggle with having a diverse representation of cultures, genders, and backgrounds. Today, we'll explore in our discussion, what does it take to serve on a board, how to prepare yourself, and how we can crack open opportunities for more leaders to get ready and to be selected. Our guest today is Brian Rankin. Brian is a leader in the CEO and board practices of Egon Zender, a preeminent global leadership advisory and leadership search firm. In his 20-year tenure with Egon Zender, he has developed deep relationships with CEOs and directors of the world's leading companies, guiding their CEO, C-suite, and board succession planning. He's earned a BA in finance from the University of Texas and an MBA from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He serves on boards himself. He's an advocate for diversity within Egon Zender, aimed at developing the next generation of female leaders. Welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us. This is a really important conversation and one people really want to have. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting to talk about this topic, which in our world today is a very important one, and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, let's start with why do people want to join boards in your perspective? What are some of the benefits? Board service can be one of the most rewarding career experiences there is. So it's a unique opportunity to see firsthand how another company operates at the highest levels. And it's also an opportunity to work with and learn from a very accomplished set of executives that would be colleagues in the boardroom. So it's really a combination of those two. And for many executives, this is also an important growth step on their path to be a CEO or move into the C-suite themselves as they think about what they can learn from this experience and bring it back to their own company. I imagine, of course, as you said, it's got to be very intellectually challenging and could make you better at your own job wherever you are. Absolutely. We'll talk through this today about what individuals can bring to that board discussion, but clearly there's an immense number of positives that an executive will get out of the experience, both in terms of learning best practices and great governance from another organization and understanding what that shift looks like from having a management discussion versus having a high-level governance discussion. And there's a whole set of other benefits, just being with a group of colleagues, other fellow directors in the boardroom that you can also learn from and learn from their own experiences. And I would imagine it expands your own network, grows your own brand. And I guess depending on the board or boards, plural, you're considering, it can really support initiatives you're passionate about too. Absolutely. So there's a long list of benefits for an executive and pursuing board work. 
Now, the piece I always tell executives, though, it is very time consuming. So if you think about the amount of time you're committed, I think there is an estimate by NACD that about 250 hours is the average time allotment per board. And so that's roughly six weeks out of the year that you're committing to board meetings, board preparation, committee meetings, et cetera. And that doesn't include the reality of today's world where companies may be in a a crisis, a significant transformation, M&A, a unexpected CEO departure, an activist. So I do tell executives, you have to be prepared to put in the work and the time commitment. And that's just part of representing shareholders and representing them to maximize shareholder value. So let's talk about that. I think some of those considerations are really important. So on the time, and I know, Brian, that varies a lot in different parts of the world. Having just moved back from the UK, the UK boards meet monthly and the time commitment can be even more than that in some cases. But that's a big consideration if you're a big leader in your own very busy job in life. And how do you think about that time commitment? There are many companies that don't allow their executives to serve on outside boards. Amazon is one of those that historically just has not allowed its executives to sit on outside boards because of the intensity of the day-to-day demands and so forth. But there's a whole list of companies that are similar to that. So you've got to go into it knowing that there's a time commitment and it's not a short-term time commitment. You're committing to represent shareholders, good times and bad times on a board. So it's committing to a number of years to do that and being there through whatever situations you need to manage through as as part of the board governance. So it is something that while it's a very exciting proposition for everyone to think about adding this to their portfolio and being part of a unique company or a unique brand and that board, there's definitely time commitment and a length of time that someone has to think about committing to serve on a board. So I think I've hired executives who were on boards and then came into a role where that particular company allowed you to be on one. So they were on three and had to go off two of them. Sometimes you don't find that out until later in the process. So I think to your point, it's something to know about a company you're joining. Do they allow you to and how many? Because some set a limit. And I'm curious if you're finding that's more and more common. Is Amazon or others the exception or is that becoming more common? The common commitment for an executive would be the ability to sit on one outside board. That's definitely true for CEOs, but it's very commonplace. It's more unusual for a sitting executive, active executive to sit on more than one outside board. On occasion, we'll see two, and that usually just happens over time. Maybe as someone is nearing retirement or looking to build up a portfolio or just adding something that's very specific that would give some added perspectives to their current role. And then once someone is into retirement or has moved into the next stage, three boards is really where we see the max at this point, if you think about the time allocation. Can you imagine three boards and and a big job? I mean, Well, they call these full-time, part-time jobs. And so that's kind of the what you go into it. There's exceptions where we see former executives sitting on four, but you'll typically see that more in the two to three range. And if you're an active executive sitting on one board is typically all you can take on. And that's likely in addition to some other not-for-profit 
boards or organizations that you might be part of as well. So in terms of composition today, broadly, and this may be more of a North America answer that you give, it may not be, but what percent would be sitting execs and what percent are more in the retirement post-exec? I would say boards still probably lean toward having more retired executives on their board because one of the profiles we're always solving for in some form or fashion is just more active voices, those that are still on the playing field, bringing that to the room. And part of that's just driven by the fact that many boards don't have age limits. Many boards don't have term limits. So back to a question I'm sure we'll get to, which is why isn't there more diversity on the board? Part of that is just due to the fact that board turnover isn't as great as what it maybe could or should be if every board had term limits. A lot of directors would consider 10 years to be a good term in order to kind of pass the baton to the next generation of directors, if you will. But that's what drives a lot of the need for active executives. And one other piece on that, Mary, is just to kind of give people a sense of what the landscape looks like. So in the Fortune 500, there's roughly 5,600 directors represented. A lot of those sit on multiple boards. So if you break that out, there's probably about 4,500 directors that sit within the Fortune 500. Last year, there were roughly about 428 new directors within the mix. So roughly about 10% just in the Fortune 500. But I think the good news in that mix is historically, we've always been focused on active or recently retired CEOs, presidents, CFOs, and that's still roughly a third of those new appointments. But it also gives some perspective that 65% of those new appointments come from other types of roles, other functional experts, industry experts, et cetera. So you can start to see the shift in thinking about active executives that are addressing some very unique areas of specialization in their own field. Clearly. To your point, we'll get in a second broader into the diversity, but I think you're right as the functional pool expands as well, or the places you look for those active executives that should open up as well. So Brian, just going back for a sec on the personal considerations, we talked about the time commitment, which is probably the biggest one. That is so fascinating on the tenure. Has there ever been, or that's just always been the case, there is no tenure. And therefore, thoughts on that, because that's a really interesting thing, because clearly there are I'm sure over time, board members may stay on long past their due date. And that's quite interesting how that pressure that that has on a company or on the CEO or the other board members to make those changes. It's an interesting topic because it's a challenge for chairs, chairs of non-committees, CEOs, because once you're on a board, especially a high-performing company, a great brand, you love to be associated with that board and with that company. And there may be a point where that individual is adding less value than they did because they're less current or what have you. But it's something that we'll see probably continue to shift from a governance perspective is more focus on term limits, age limits, and so forth. Is that happening, starting? or? I think there's more informal discussion on that today, which will probably lead to more formal policies over time. But I think for those that have sat on multiple boards, I think they recognize themselves that there is a limit to just as you would in an executive role or being a CEO, you tend to 
lean in and probably have your best years in your first five. And then you start to think about succession at that point. Companies are under so much pressure to transform and fundamentally transform. And the world is changing so much. But are boards keeping up? Boards are in some ways struggling to keep up just because of some of the barriers on turnover in the boardroom. But it does put more of an emphasis, as we've discussed, on having active executives that are bringing that recency and just understanding and dealing with that volatility and complexity real time. It puts a greater focus on those that really understand the digital landscape, that understand technology, cybersecurity, that bring perspectives from different industries that are all converging. So it does put a finer point on a much diverse set of experiences around the boardroom that bring some of that active perspective to bear. On this point, you mentioned there's a certain past and current uh, CFOs have always been attractive for obvious reasons, but what are some of the more current desired perspectives? I mean, I would think some CIO or the cyber and the more technology perspective would be very attractive now, or even in years past, it was, could we have more HR people on boards from the people and the human capital perspective? But what would you say? Is there a perspective that there are a few really desired lenses right now? It varies, Mary, but the one consistent theme is technology and digital. That means different things to different boards and in different sectors, different organizations, whether it's consumer-driven tech or more the role of the CIO, CTO in a transformation, their cybersecurity and risk management that's part of that. So it's a full continuum as you think about technology, but clearly that is on the minds of every board in some form or fashion of how to bring some of those perspectives and some of that wisdom into the boardroom. I know a lot of broadly call them technologists, really impressive people. I've referred some and diverse talent. They often wonder, how do they make themselves more visible? Some are on boards, they're on smaller boards or really cool, niche startups and all kinds of things. But to crack into the bigger boards, and they're pretty big leaders. So I'm curious, given the desire for that talent and diversity, and how does one get more noticed or get into the queue of being seen and thought of from your perspective? There's definitely a advocacy component of this, which is because a lot of the board candidates that I've placed in recent years have been referred to me by potentially their CEO, their own board directors. So there is a piece of this of making those around them aware of their interest in serving on a board. And maybe even a bit of advocacy to say, this person could be one of my CEO succession candidates in the coming years, and I really need to round this person out with some board experience. So your CEO can be an advocate, your own board can be an advocate, but it is tapping into your network, whether that's search firms, private equity firms, consulting firms, but just making those that interact with boards frequently aware that this is part of your personal journey and something you're very committed to. And the second part of that is finding ways to raise your own profile through, it could be speaking engagements, it could be through blogs in your own articles and writing, but just other ways to be more visible in terms of building your personal brand in the market as well. 
And then if I step back, Mary, there's a piece of this, which is before all of that even starts, is taking some time to actually create your board bio. And it's very different to have a board bio than to have a CV or a resume, which goes through your kind of chronological experiences and kind of what you bring to the table in terms of I've led this size of organization, this size of PL, I've done this and that. But it really forces you to step back and say, what is it specifically that I really bring to the table? Because as we just kind of talked about board searches and these board roles are very specific, but it's really taken some time to think about what sets you apart from others in your equivalent roles and just some of the things that would really be relevant from a board perspective in a, in a succinct way. And it's a different type of positioning. So if we think about what makes a board member successful or some of those competencies, some of those are similar to what you would experience as an executive role, but we would start with things around independence and integrity. We would start with strategic acumen. We would think about judgment. We would think about influence and collaboration. And there's elements in there really that relate to someone's leadership capabilities, leadership approach, and those interpersonal skills that go with that. But it's everything on the independent side of the being willing to challenge and willing to be challenged. It's on the strategy side. A board's responsibility is to ultimately validate and influence strategy on behalf of the shareholders and work closely with the executive team. So how has this person really demonstrated some broad thinking and supporting strategic options? And that's a combination of obviously intellect and curiosity and various things. Judgment, just in terms of how they've used their skills and their experiences, how much wisdom and how, how they'll be able to draw on that wealth of experience and be well-rounded and balanced in, in different perspectives. And then I think the one on, if you think about influence and sitting in the boardroom, this is someone that has to be a very strong communicator, a great listener, someone that is very credible with the right degree of stature and collaboration, but can really both kind of adapt their style, but really has proven themselves on their ability to influence both in a boardroom and across the executive team. So those are a different set of capabilities and unique specifics that executives need to think about and articulate when they're thinking of board service. When it really relates back to having these discussions, you're thinking about how your background and the things that you've done relate to addressing CEO succession, setting compensation at the top, helping to influence and validate long-term strategy, risk management, kind of protecting shareholder value. So those are all the things that the discussions in the boardroom, and it's kind of reframing your own experiences and how they meet those requirements that the board is looking for. So a long-winded way to say there's a step in here to create a board bio. And oftentimes, I would say to create a really good board bio, it means you've got to sit down with your mentors, sit down with those that know you, because your self-assessment probably doesn't get to the strengths that you're really bringing to the table in some ways on some of these dimensions I just talked about. So I think having that discussion, having a really authentic kind of self-assessment of what you would bring to a boardroom and working through that is it's really the first step of the process for individuals rather than just say, look, I'm ready to sit on a board. There's a lot of reflection, self-assessment, 
and talking through this with mentors and sponsors around what is it that I could really bring to this board discussion. This is really helpful. So I want to dig in a little. So there's the which capabilities. So you started to speak about those. The things I heard was really around, as you said, the strategic intelligence, the judgment, the true strategy side of understanding business and business models and all of that. Then you were talking about the relational intelligence or that side of influence and collaboration and in all of that. And the risk you mentioned, the one I was curious about too is what about cultural and really appreciating influence and strategy and all those aspects, but within an appreciation of cultural differences? Is that emerging? Is that important? And then I want to just add to that, Brian, it's brilliant. You said too, you're really shaping this board bio with your advocates or with people who know you well. And then once you've got it, where does it go? Where does it live? Like CVs you have in other things on LinkedIn and this and that. But are you also then getting that in the hands of those advocates, as you said, the CEO, the directors, the network, and search firms? Or how does it really work once you've got a great board bio? We always tell executives that this is not a fast process. I can give you a sense that it's a fairly small number of executives that join boards on an annual basis. So this isn't a process that happens overnight. We always give some guidance that this could be a two-year journey or more in some cases to really find the right first board. So it is a lot about advocacy. I mean, search firms probably represent maybe a third of some of the board succession and board placements, but a lot of this will be through network and through your own advocates as you work through this. On the culture piece, there's two parts to that, Barry. One is just going back to the time allocation we talked about and kind of finding the right board. I usually tell executives to think about board service in two ways, not just the company itself, but because of the time commitment, it really has to be something that you're passionate about. So it has to be a company, a brand, something that you can be really proud to represent because it does take time and it does take interest and curiosity and all of those things. So if you're hesitant and you just don't feel the connection, and a lot of times that connection can be around the culture. There's a lot of very unique cultures that just people gravitate toward and they just love being part of that organization because of the mission, the values and the purpose, regardless of what the company is. But I always encourage executives to really think about passion and fit with that company's culture on those dimensions, in addition to to fitting with the culture of the boardroom. Boards are comprised of processes, but they're mostly comprised of behaviors <laughs> and different personalities and so forth. And it's really that fit with those that are around you in the boardroom that's a big part of it as well. And boards are embracing diversity. They're embracing inclusion, different viewpoints in a whole range of different ways than what was even in the room two years ago. So that's definitely moving in the right direction, but it's both culture fit and passion for the company and for the CEO and the brand, but it's also very much your fit with your fellow directors in the room. I really resonate with the passion when I've been on, it was a nonprofit board that was such a good, <laughs> amazing focus, but it wasn't the area I was most passionate about. And I had to check in with that. And I really felt the difference. You're spot on. It just, it fuels it differently when it's that big of a commitment and a focus. And it really does make a difference. So the fit part, 
I just want to probe a little because I've experienced board members and I've coached board members where I think the richness of diverse styles is so important. And some people go and they're very data-driven and very analytical in their approach. And this particular board member came at things 90,000 feet and very strategically and looked at more what's coming next. And styles, fit can be an interesting thing. You've got to fit on some dimensions, but the richness of not all being the same is so important as well. Yeah. And some of that comes from just embracing some different, back to the technology question dialogue we had, putting an executive from the West Coast, from Silicon Valley on a Fortune 500 industrial board is a bit of a culture shock. So the directors really have to embrace that and they have to welcome being on a bit of a different journey on some topics and embrace some different thought processes. So that's becoming more the norm. So I think that that part, for the most part, has made a pretty dramatic shift over the years. Brian, you talked about all these amazing capabilities. And is there an assessment of sorts that is used that's common? Do search firms use something that is very board specific? Is it similar to what you would use if you were looking for CEO candidates or senior leaders? Or is it really different? And then maybe a follow on is, in all those things, have you ever seen anything that just really stands out? I think it's a combination of all those things we just talked about. And we kind of talked about independence and integrity and strategy, judgments, influencing, collaboration, kind of a personal style. I would just say, I don't know if there's any one thing that stands out, but there's clearly some CEOs make terrible directors. And I say that in a sense that sometimes it's really hard for executives to transition from managing and leading and operating and being in the details versus stepping up to a role where you're now focused on governance. You're focused on having a dialogue, asking the right questions, but not getting into being a management board. Some are good at that journey and some are not, and some never get through that journey. It's also a reason that for many executives, it's good to sit on a not-for-profit board because it starts to expose you a bit on that journey and the committee structure and kind of the role you play in the room versus the role you play as someone running a business. But I think the ability for someone to kind of elevate to that level, be very inquisitive about asking questions. So there's a lot of curiosity that I would say sets people apart in the boardroom. So it's the curiosity, it's the ability to be inquisitive, ask the right questions, but do that in a very collaborative, supportive approach and the ability to influence, which means influencing based on using some different approaches to influence those in the room that are either driven by the heart or the head or whatever it may be that drives some of the decision making. That's brilliant. I think those are two differentiators, curiosity and the influence in particular. Are there other good ways in your mind to get ready for a board before you're on one? It seems to be a hard thing to do. I mean, many execs have board presentations, participate in committees, but for many, it's hard to get that real experience. Any thoughts on that? Again, I think this goes back to a little bit of the finding advocates and using that also as a means to really learn what makes someone successful in the boardroom. So typically your own directors on your board will be welcome to spend time and kind of walk through some of their experiences in the boardroom because they likely sit on multiple boards. So I think it goes back to just investing the time and 
both learning and creating advocates through that same investment. I'd share too, our chairman of my last company, Rolls-Royce, really had this vision and asked us to start what we called a board apprentice program. (laughs) And so we built that from scratch and it was brilliant. It was very select leaders at all levels who were brought right in to get some real-time board experience. And it was really helpful for the board too, but it was really, really enriching for them to gain true experience that they otherwise might not have gotten and position them for future. It was a long-term investment, but really helpful. Brian, I just want to toggle back really quickly. You mentioned any other personal considerations in terms of insurance or risk to yourself or brand, or are those just things that kind of come with it or anything to think about in the changing governance landscape that really people are going in eyes wide open in that this is a big responsibility and not without some risk? I think that's the key is making sure you've done your due diligence. And a lot of that is the integrity and how much you respect the CEO and the other directors around the table, knowing that we're in an environment where there's increasing activism, there's no shortage of companies that are in the midst of a transformation and disruption, and knowing that you've got leaders and executives with the right integrity and approach that you can align with is what's most important, as long as you know you're in this together. Let's swing back to, you mentioned earlier, We're also interested in how we crack the diversity challenge and the tenure plays into that. Any other thoughts on, is that progressing well? What could leapfrog it? Any secret sauce, anything that you can mention or anything that we as leaders can do to lean in more there and help that? I'll start with maybe the reality in the market. So, I mean, there are some things that are driving this. There's obviously the legislation in California, which is first required one female director, and now it's three by 2021. I think boards are recognizing that while diversity at one point was maybe more of getting one or two diverse directors on the board, it really does take critical mass to have a much more inclusive discussion. So from our research, we would say that unless you have three women on the board, that's at the point you start to see the value of the collective voice and and some of the dialogue changing. So it does take critical mass. We've seen now that within the Fortune 500, there's upwards of 25 to 30% of boards that have over 40% of the board is diverse now. So there's definitely momentum. The question is how to accelerate that. And we talked about some of the things that impede that with board tenure and the lack of board turnover on one dimension. But there's also been a hesitancy. A lot of diversity in the boardroom sits on multiple boards. So oftentimes when we're working to bring diversity into a boardroom and some different perspectives, there's still a bias to say, well, that person has some existing board experience. And I do think we're in a inflection point now as the diversity discussion has broadened to ethnic diversity and so forth that boards are becoming more receptive to thinking about first-time directors and kind of rethinking their path a bit. I think we're at an inflection point today as the imperative of diversity is heightened, not only with gender, but ethnic diversity. And that's also creating the need for boards to be much more receptive to first-time directors. 
and think more broadly about different backgrounds and what that could look like in terms of specific perspectives that new directors can bring to the board. So I think we'll see less of the, this person's already sitting on a board and they could bring value to our board, but now thinking more broadly about how do we solve for bringing diversity and inclusion into the conversation, but be much more open to someone who hasn't sat on a board before. So I think that's a big positive, or at least my hypothesis of what will change to potentially accelerate diversity over the next 24, 36 months. Perfect. And I think you had said it, I think it sounds in some ways pretty obvious, but I'm not sure if someone's considering really cracking into a first-time director, really leveraging their network broadly and their own leadership team, CEO, board, and really refreshing or creating that amazing board bio and really actively pursuing it. Again, it sounds obvious, but it may not be always the case. And it's fantastic. Brian, I'm going to switch to, on the personal front, I've known you a really long time. And I'd love to see if you have any tips. You are leading two really big areas, the CEO and the board practice, and are clearly extremely busy as an executive. But you also have a really robust social life and are on boards. And you have a big family, apparently seven children, Brian. And so this is a big life and a big work and it's a lot. And so I wonder tips on balancing or managing all that you have going on in your life. Any tips for others who, it's a big deal right now. I think many, many are struggling with just not only the change in the world, but staying agile to what's ahead. Any thoughts, any tips? I would say a couple of things. And I think COVID has made it even worse because the days blend together, the professional and personal blend together at all hours, et cetera. So it hasn't helped in the frame of balance. So I guess what I've found is one, I need help. So I need someone to keep me honest, whether that's a spouse or an assistant or a colleague where they know I need to be off the grid or I need to be completely in the moment with children or a board, whatever it may be, that they're helping to support that and keep things off my schedule or just help keep me honest in that regard. So I do think it takes a bit of a village or it takes having some support network that can help you do that along the way. And I found that the iPhone is a very evil device in the day. And as much as I love it. So I've gotten in the habit of just being places where I do not have anything tethered to me at all. To have children kind of look at you when you're on a beach on a Zoom and say, what are you doing? <laughs> Brings a moment of clarity to life. But I think just completely being untethered and maybe COVID has also helped us appreciate that we don't have to be everywhere. Things go on without us and we can recognize that we all need some breaks and probably being a little more transparent around, look, I'm going to be completely off the grid. I'm not going to be checking email for the next 48 hours or whatever it may be. And I think at the end of the day, everyone understands that and appreciates that. But I think it's being a little more selfish and transparent just to say, look, if you need me, so-and-so can find me, but here's where I'm going to be. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And Brian, I'd love to know as well, is there a piece of career advice that you would share that has served you well in your career or something you'd pass on? Well, look, I've got three children in college right now, one that just graduated. I think this is an old Mark Twain quote, but I always just tell them, 
find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I found it's true for me. I happened to find this unusual profession that I'm in 20 years ago. But through that, I've recognized that my purpose is to help others be successful and help them impact the world in a bigger way. And that's helped me as a parent, but it's also kind of my mission professionally that I really have engaged with. So when I give people that advice, because it's the same thing we talked about with boards, you have to really engage with the company, the brand you're going to be associated with. And if you really love it, you're going to have a great time, no matter how much time you spend on it. And so that kind of plays back to the boardroom as well. And the only thing I would say is there's a piece of this. We talked a lot about relationships in this discussion we just had. And don't underestimate giving to relationships and how much they'll give back. And don't underestimate the power of great mentors that will help you on this journey and be advocates for you. It's kind of obvious given what we just talked about for the path to the board. But it is so important to understand how to both give to those relationships. And what I have found over the years, especially with uh, directors in the boardroom, CEOs, they are very generous in wanting to give, do favors, and help others in their own journey because they all recognize how fortunate they've been. So it's just don't hesitate to lean on those and ask for advice and keep the curiosity. I love that. Thank you so much, Brian. You've shared very openly, very transparently, what it takes to position oneself for a board, the things we all need to consider, some insider tips. It's been really helpful. We all want boards to be incredibly impactful and companies to be successful, but we also want to really just tap the brilliant leaders that are out there and and make this a possible route for everyone. So thank you. Thank you so much again. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mary. Just one last thing for everyone. A lot of what we talked about, if you Google path to the boardroom, you'll see a link to our website where we have kind of a three-part series on this, getting ready to join a board, the next steps of how to interview, and then how to be a good director after you've gotten there. And there's also some help on actually creating your board bio. So you'll see some templates and some things that can help you with that. But I encourage everyone to go take a look at path to the boardroom and best of luck. Thank you. And we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. So it's really easy to find. Brian, thank you again. I enjoyed it. I'll do this anytime with you. It's fun to converse. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Mm-hmm.